You are listening to Without Precedent, a podcast series hosted by Eli Edwards and Nikki Pope of Santa Clara University School of Law. We talk with inventors, lawyers, academics, judges, politicians about the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice. Without Precedent is sponsored by the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara Law. I'm Nikki Pope, one of the co-hosts of Without Precedent. And I'm Eli Edwards, the other co-host. Today, we are joined by Joanna Mendoza, a trustee of the California State Bar, and Mary Grace Guzman, an attorney who represents clients before the bar. Before we get started, here's a little background on our guest. In her capacity as trustee, Joanna represents the 3rd District in an unpaid elected position. Joanna's term began in October 2013 and was re-elected to a second term that ends in October of this year. Since 2007, Joanna has had leadership and advisory roles with the California State Bar. She is currently a member of the Task Force on Access Through Innovation of Legal Services that is looking into ways to increase availability of legal services for underserved communities in California. In addition to representing lawyers before the state bar, Mary Grace also advises law firm clients on matters regarding legal ethics. She also acts as outside ethics counsel for law firms. She provides continuing legal education, CLE, courses on legal ethics, competency, and elimination of bias. She is a member of the Contra Costa County Bar Association and sits on various bar association committees. Mary Grace has been named to the Northern California Super Lawyers Rising Stars for Professional Liability since 2015. She's also an alum of Santa Clara Law. Welcome, Joanna and Mary Grace. So how did you get involved in the state bar, Joanna? Okay, well, um, I'm happy to say I'm one of two of the last elected trustees on the board. I was um, elected in 2013 to sit on the board of trustees after spending many years uh, volunteering with the state bar on the intellectual property law section and the state bar council of sections at that time. And I came on board and with couple of the public members of the board recognized some serious problems with our regulatory system. And we engaged in a very strong fight to deunify the state bar so that we could separate out the trade association functions from the regulatory functions. It took a couple years, it finally happened. And um, we now have the California Lawyers Association. We got rid of elections of the board and that I'm about to end my term in September. Okay. Well, I mean, supposedly we have over 175,000 active attorneys in California. We're one of the largest lawyer populations in the United States. How do we have a justice gap? I know, that's a good question, and it just keeps growing. Nobody has a good answer for why, other than what we've been doing hasn't been working. Okay, so what has the task? What does the task force pr- propose should work? We have a lot of recommendations, and we've looked at other countries, in particular, and uh, other states as well. 
and we've determined that there's no need in our market to limit ownership of legal related services to just attorneys. It opens up innovation if you can open up ownership to other people and allow them to participate in the business structure. We have, in order to do that, we also have to eliminate the uh, fee sharing restrictions on attorneys and advertising restrictions as well. We need to do something as much as we can to encourage innovation in the legal services space to provide more services. And in particular, we'd like to see those services that fill the justice gap. I'd like to bring in Mary yeah. Grace. So, um, well, I agree with you on the you know, justice gap for, especially I grew up in a rural community, and so I understand that the lack of access. With that said, um, there's, I think, a lot of fear for attorneys, especially small attorneys and solos, when you're talking about this, these new rules. Um, it ranges from quality of services um, all the way through, you know, having non-lawyers own a law practice is a very scary concept, especially when you already have um, predatory um, services that already exist, especially for immigrant communities, you know, such as notarios and other, and there are some quasi, you know, you have these um, certificates where people can fill in documents, but there's a very fine line between filling in documents and actually practicing law. And as I read these rules, you know, one of the concerns that I personally have, and I'm sure many of my colleagues would have, is that there's this idea that certain services are allowed to be provided by non-lawyers. And how do we delineate that division, especially when certain areas of law is seen as easier areas of law than others, but the bigger consequences is quite great, especially for our immigrant communities who are highly preyed upon. And so there's that issue. Um, there, I know that, and hopefully we can talk about this a little bit more in the future as we talk through this podcast, is there have been samples of this. Um, I don't know if you remember My U.S. Legal. Um, so My U.S. Legal was came about in the 2000s when the you know, financial housing market imploded. And what happened was it was created by technically lawyers with lots of non-lawyer influence. They're, they were marketing themselves directly towards solos. And so, you know, you had a lot of attorneys who had no work during this time. Or you had a lot of law students who graduated from law school with no work at this time. So, and I personally even got a phone call from my U.S. Legal offering me an opportunity to join them. My U.S. Legal was designed as a consumer benefit program to help those individuals who are going to lose their house. Um, if you look up my U.S. Legal, there are, it doesn't exist anymore. Several attorneys were either disbarred or significantly disciplined as a result of this and the way the structure happened. And it was partly, you know, it was deemed as a predatory service, a scam. Um, the way it was set up was, was that, you know, the consumer was supposed to spend so much money on their legal services every month. It was supposed to be affordable. The fees were anywhere from 500 to $2,000 a month. If you're already in the red with your house and you're underwater, 
and now you're paying someone else to do this, it's questionable, right? Um, I don't know the full success rate of how many houses were saved, but I do know that there were many, many lawyers who were disciplined um, either and disbarred. So there is some like very strong knee-jerk reaction to these rules in terms of quality and competency and how do we protect not only the consumer, but how do we guarantee that lawyers are providing excellent services when we're engaging with non-lawyers? I think that's a perfect example of how you know, lawyers are not perfect already. I mean, those are lawyers that engaged in conduct that violated the rules of professional conduct that already exist, and they do that all the time. We already have that problem. Uh, they were, I was on the board during the, the worst part of that crisis as we got the client security fund significantly hit. And one of the largest problems with the mortgage crisis and, and what was happening was that attorneys were taking fees before they did the work and not doing the work. That's a problem that's going to exist regardless of what reforms we're talking about here. They're not allowed to do that under the rules. There's nobody influencing attorneys to engage in dis, you know, conduct that's going to result in them being disbarred. They do something wrong, they do something wrong. And uh, there was legislation that actually was passed to address that, to require that the work be done before you can collect the fee. And it helps some of that. But um, I, d I don't... I don't consider that a good example because we had attorneys engaging in conduct that violated the rules of professional conduct, and we're not saying you shouldn't have the client as your first and, and most important concern going forward. Uh, there's, I, I think there's no basis to the fear that lawyers are going to be unduly influenced by non-attorneys going forward. It doesn't happen in in-house counsel situations where you definitely have management that are not lawyers. They still recognize their duties. And um, we, have, we have this type of, there are two different issues that we're kind of talking about here. We have the, the ownership by non-lawyers and we have non-lawyers engaging in certain practices. They're two separate issues. Right now, non-lawyers who are in, engaging in some practices are not regulated. We're trying to bring them in the fold so they can be, to make sure there are disciplinary measures that can be taken. Right now, it's kind of a, it's, it's not well managed by the state. And ideally, we're talking about being able to provide services where currently no services are really being provided. The huge justice gap is not being served by the 175,000 active lawyers out there, because it's not something they can make money with. We have to come up with an alternative market to make that work. And if attorneys aren't going to do it, and they've proven for decades now they're not, as the gap grows, we need to find alternatives. And in those countries that have, that have done this, there hasn't been a sky is falling outcome. You know, uh, the UK has never had the unauthorized practice of law. So many people provide legal advice that are not lawyers. This might be outside of the scope of the task force, but what would the regulatory scheme look like for these new legal service providers that aren't lawyers? How do you catch them up on their ethical duties? How do you require a corporation to take 
CLE credits, et cetera, et cetera. Who's going to be the boots on the ground besides the lawyers to, to um, be called for disciplinary measures if they violate the rules? The recommendations right now uh, propose two different models for the regulatory authority. Uh, one is the state bar expands its regulation to cover other entities. And the other one is we create a new regulatory authority to do that. As to what the ethical requirements are going to be and all the, the details associated with that regulation, we're leaving that for the next step in the process because just getting this far and getting our heads wrapped around a new model, you know, we're floating a concept right now and we're trying to get some buy-in on the concept. And once we're able to do that, then we're going to look at the details and then, again, have further participation in what those regulations need to be, what the educational requirements are going to have to be, the ethical requirements, the disciplinary system. Yeah, it, it's, it's yet to come, and we certainly want feedback on the two models of regulation we're looking at to start with. Okay. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading some of the comments and uh, the proposed rules was um, being an attorney, how is that going to change accreditation? So for instance, one of the banes of attorney existence is CLE, especially the big, the, the, the three <laughs> that you can only get, the ethics and the other two. I forget, the, they keep changing the name There's of the one. bias Com and competency. Yeah. Right. Yes, those are all. I yes. give them all. <laughs> <laughs> And so is there going to be some change in those CLE requirements? And if not, how does the, um, how does the, the, the Bar Association um, explain the difference in requirements for no lawyers versus non-lawyers, especially with those, with those specialized um, uh, requirements? There's no talk about changing the CLE requirements. There's a recommendation that we add a comment to one of the rules of professional conduct that make it clear that lawyers have a duty of competence when it comes to technology uh, because the world is changing and we have to keep up with it. But there's no talk about adding a CLE requirement for technology. Um, we've been looking at that for a couple of years, at least on the board. Um, there's concern people don't want to make it about vendors promoting their products. So how we would create that MCLE for technology is, is, hasn't been determined yet. So there's no talk about changing those MCLE requirements. You know, California has one of the lowest MCLE requirements in the, in the country. So I don't, I don't know that we're going to be reducing anything at this point. Um, whether or not it's truly effective is another question. I don't know if you've had a chance to go online. The State Bar has a new uh, ethics course online. And it's very interactive, and it forces you to pay attention and participate during the course. And it's free. It's two hours of ethics. And it's the, it's the way we want to go with these required courses. It doesn't cost anybody anything. They're actually forced to learn something during the course. But other than that, I'm not... Uh, noticing any talk of change for the MCLE requirements. I would agree with you with regard to um, the need for understanding technology. You know, having represented 
small law firms and solos, I see, I've, I have seen the huge gap, the technology gap between lawyers, whether it's due to um, a generational difference or it's just due to, um, I don't want to, it could be financial, it could just be access or preference, take your pick. Um, but when you see the differences in how law is actually practiced on a day-to-day -day basis and what that can actually create for the lawyer in terms of problems, and it can be anything from how they are um, managing their finances because technology really does help that, to how do they manage their information. And I think information management and privacy um, is a big issue that I don't believe many lawyers fully appreciate or understand. Um, you know, you have their websites that are starting to show up and you can now have a website where you can have a prospective client provide information. And once you get that information, you're not going to know if this particular prospective client has an immediate um, conflict with your existing client until they've filled that information out. And now you're looking at, you may have obtained confidential information from a you know, prospective client that is in direct conflict with your existing client. And does that disqualify you? Very well could. Um, so having attorneys understand, you know, privacy issues, you know, there is the CIPP and there's the new Cal CI, was the California Privacy Protection Act that exists now. And having, you know, I, I know that hospitals understand that quite well. A lot of other corporations are understanding that, and there's this ramp up for these corporations to start implementing the California rules. I am not seeing the same level of education for whether it's large law firms or small law firms with regard to privacy, with regard to how are we using the internet. Um, you know, lawyers now have these client portals where they can, where your client can now upload information and you can exchange information that way, which is great. It saves time. It saves potentially money. But is there a true understanding of what that means in terms of, you know, confidentiality, in terms of privacy? Um, you know, we all have laptops and phones. What happens when your laptop or phone gets stolen? And what is your duty there? You know, I've had you know, individuals call me up and say, well, this happened to me. And I tell them, you know, number one, you better tell your insurance provider. You might need to tell your clients, depending on what types of information was immediately available on your laptop versus what types of information was actually on the cloud. So the technology CLE that needs to happen in the education is very much so needed. Um, I'd like to add that I think we're putting an awful lot on lawyers who are trained to practice law. And it's one of the reasons why I think we do need to look at these alternative business structures to allow people who have expertise in these areas to actually participate in the management of our legal service providers. Are you thinking, or is the, is the regulatory <laughs> authority thinking that... Uh, in this new world or these new structures that you would have lawyers partnered with non-lawyers so that you would not have a non-lawyer person, a non-licensed person involved in uh, 
in giving legal advice? Well, one of the things in the recommendations is that we're asking uh, that these these certified registered legal service companies, these technologies, have certain requirements that apply to them, including uh, the equivalent to an attorney-client privilege when you're interacting with these technology companies. Now, it will create a it will require, excuse me, a uh, statutory change for evidentiary purposes because that's really where the privilege comes in is evidence. Uh, we're also, uh, we want to make sure there's a level of confidentiality that is required so that we don't have issues where the data is sold, it can be used uh, by other parties. So those are recommendations we put out even though we're not getting down to the weeds of the regulations mm -hmm. at this point because we want people to understand we've thought about some of these issues. We want to make sure going forward those issues are addressed in the ultimate regulations that are put in place because we recognize the concerns. I want to ask in terms of the limited license legal technicians, do we know how that program is working in Washington State? Uh, from what I've read, there are two issues with that. Where it's actually been implemented, it's working well. However, the barrier to entry is so high that they're just not getting the uh, involvement in the program like they'd hoped to. So they're having to look at scaling back the requirements. The limited license legal technicians in Washington State did not come from that bar association. They were resisting it. It had to come down from the Supreme Court. The attorneys in the state did not want it. The Supreme Court required that it be implemented, but the attorneys are the ones that created the qualifications, and we've got this barrier that makes it even harder out of fear that what they're going to be providing is going to take work away from the lawyers. So in the United Kingdom, they have no UPL, as I mentioned. They've had people who are not lawyers providing legal services for years, and attorneys have gotten plenty of work through this. And as the alternative business structures have been implemented, the amount of attorney employment's actually gone up. So it's... Uh, it's unfortunate that attorneys are concerned about other players entering the market, but there's such a huge market that's not being served. It's not likely to impact their work unless they're specifically serving that area and they're not doing it efficiently. You know, from my perspective, and I, I, I see it from two different views. I, I, I represent lawyers, so I understand the concern of hitting their pocketbooks. But I'm also, um, you know, come from a Mexican-American background, come from a rural community where access is very difficult. My concern is is the quality of services um, from uh, whether you want to call them a paraprofessional, a limited license. Um, you know, I've spent a certain amount of time in my practice as an ethics attorney where even attorneys who are trained lawyers will s represent themselves before the state bar. And I've had to undo their messes because they aren't trained in that area. And my concern would be is having these limited licensed individuals doing what they know, which is, you know, it's, I'm assuming it's going to be very, very limited. Um, and what happens when it gets messed up or sometimes um, 
you know, we as attorneys are trained not only to think about the legal issue, but we also have to think two, three, sometimes 20 steps ahead of us as to how this is going to evolve. And, you know, there have been countless of times where you a client comes in and it looks really simple and they tell you only so much. They thought they were telling you the truth, but until you start digging and talking with the client, you realize, oh, there was this issue and that issue. And and it evolves into a much larger web than it was initially presented to you. And, um, you know, what are, I don't know what would happen if we're limiting it to a certain type of services and certain types of, what happens when a legal issue, you know, takes a life of its own and it spins out of control? In the comments, one of the, a few of the comments actually um, discussed or tried to differentiate between uh, law as a profession and law as a business. And there were a few comparisons of lawyers to doctors and, and other professional services of that level where you have additional schooling. Um, one person said something like, um, what are we going to have now do-it-yourself surgeries? And so my question is, is there a difference that we should be considering here between lawyers as a profession and legal services as a business? Well, I would argue that lawyers as a profession have been operating businesses in the form of law firms forever. <laughs> and so it's already a business. The question is, is it run very well as a business? And I don't, I don't think that it has, especially considering the justice gap keeps growing. Uh, we, we're not doing something right. Um, with respect to performing your own surgery, I mean, right now we have a huge portion of the population performing their own surgery, frankly. But you wouldn't go to a surgeon for a flu shot. You can go to a pharmacist for a flu shot, for goodness sakes. That's a good analogy. And so, you know, in, in the health profession, there are different levels of licensed professionals that provide services. We really don't have that in the legal profession. And it's a model we, we could certainly look at. And I do think that part of it, you know, law, law, lawyers and as business people is not addressed in law school. Um, I know that when I graduated, there was no work because it was 2018 and 2010, and that was when the economy had imploded. And so I was looking at, okay, I need to support myself. I'm a single parent. I need to support my daughter. So, and I need to open up a law practice. So what I did, which is very different from many, I'd say almost all of my classmates, was I took, at the time there existed a um, nonprofit that helped low-income women develop and design their own businesses. So I took an entrepreneurial class. It was six weeks, and I learned about how to structure a business. And um, I see that among my clients. I see those clients who are excellent business people. And they understand how that their practice is a business. I see others who don't understand that. Um, and so I think you know, that basic understanding and education is essential for lawyers. So uh, I actually was going to ask you, it exists under the current circumstances, right, where, where law firms will pass on or a, 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 a partner will leave and take their book of business with them from one firm to another or from one small shop to another or 
law for, or s solos get together, how is that addressed if it is? Having done it a couple of times myself when I went from one firm to another, the rules already address it. It's the client's choice. The client has to agree for its business to go to the, to the attorney if they're moving. If the attorney is stop, stopping their practice, the client gets to decide whether or not they want to keep their business with a firm or go to another attorney. So that's already built into our structure, and that's, there's no discussion about taking that anywhere. It's, it's always going to be the client's choice who they want to have represent them for whatever purpose. Um, the, I understand change is scary <laughs> for a lot of people, but what we're talking about is opening up a world of new business structures which will increase the likelihood of innovation because we've been kind of stuck in our profession for a very long time with doing the same models. Increasing innovation, which would increase the number of entities as well, which would increase employment for lawyers, which would also reduce the pricing, and as a result of reducing pricing, it would increase access to justice. It's an economic model. A lot of attorneys are not focused on the economics of the situation, but we're trying to reduce the anti-competitive nature of our current structure and open it up. Okay. Um, we're going to wrap it up, um, but I did want to um, ask Joanna if you would let people know where they can go to get more information and to, if public comments are still open, um, to provide public comments. Yeah, I would uh, recommend people go to the State Bar website if you scroll down on the home page, one of the first things uh, when it talks about current things that are going on is a direct link to the page on adults and the public comment section. We're accepting public comments until September 23rd. At that point, we'll get back together, take a look at all the comments, see how that's going to change the recommendations that are going to go to the board. The final report is going to the board by the end of the year. For more information about the work of the task force to submit a public comment or attend an open public meeting, visit www.calbar.ca.gov and search for Task Force on Access Through Innovation of Legal Services. You have been listening to Without Precedent, a podcast series that considers the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice. Our music was composed by Nicole Jacobus, our editor is Nicole Jacobus. Our audio engineer is Fern Silva of the Santa Clara University Communication Department. The views expressed in Without Precedent are the views of the participants and do not reflect the views of the High Tech Law Institute, Santa Clara Law, or Santa Clara University. To learn more about Without Precedent, visit our website, law.scu.edu slash without precedent. <laughs>